Welcome to The Draft Board, where hosts David Song and Tyson Workington tackle the topics that you want to hear. From the rink, to the turf, to the court, anything and everything, this is The Draft Board. Ladies and gentlemen, it's been a little while. It's been, it's been a few weeks, but welcome back to The Draft Board Podcast, Season 2, Episode 1. As you know, I'm David Song. He's Tyson Workington. And because there are now thousands of kilometers between us, we are on Zoom. <laughs> we are not actually doing this in person, but Tyson, it's good to do this with you again. Yeah, it's good to do this with you again as well. It's been a while, and I'm glad to uh, have have the opportunity to do this with you, see you on my lovely computer screen once again. And uh, yeah, I'm excited. Well, folks, we want to kick things off by talking a bit about a topic we or a sport rather, that we haven't covered yet on this podcast, and that's baseball. And the mm-hmm. main reason for that is, quite frankly, Tyson's not a baseball fan, and I'm still very much acquiring <laughs> that taste. But, <laughs> but here's the thing, right? Baseball is not nearly as fast-paced as a lot of other sports out there, particularly mainstream sports, right? You've got basketball where people are running up and down the court constantly. You have hockey, which is fast and it has to be it's on the ice and even football is really start stop but it's nonetheless still things like a new play is happening every like minute every 45 seconds and so but baseball as some of you out there know is a very deliberate like slow paced sport almost like golf in a way it's things play out slowly it can take a while to actually get anything going because you've got pitchers throwing hey ball one strike one and so on and and so on and so even though obviously baseball has a lot of history behind it and it is a it is an international sport i mean folk i mean folks in japan folks in south america you know there's a lot of people not just americans who love this sport but at the same time you know it really is a sport that can be very unappealing to a lot of people would you agree tyson yeah, I would, you know, like I would probably say that I wouldn't classify myself as a baseball fan. I've never really been drawn to it. Um, I, I'll pay attention to the Blue Jays when they hit the playoffs. You know, that's kind of always been my opinion. Like I'm a big sports fan. So, you know, for me, it just kind of seems like baseball, it's not nearly as interesting. I don't have those emotional ties, kind of that sentimental value that I know a lot of people in the United States have towards baseball. For me, it's just never really been something that has gotten me interested, something that has gotten me excited. And and that's just kind of my experience with baseball. Indeed. And for me, like I said, I'm acquiring the taste of it. I remember the first time watching my a Blue Jays game a, a few, two or three years back, I was like, oh my goodness, is this literally what baseball is? Ball one, strike one, ball two, strike two. And in about 20 minutes, I was like, you've got to be kidding me. People like this. Now <laughs> I didn't give up because I love sports. And since then I've, to be honest, like I've found a lot more interesting things in baseball than I did that first night, but it definitely was a lot more of a process than say basketball, where I watched my first NBA game live right here in Indianapolis to, in fact, uh, Pacers Raptors two years ago. Mm. And I was hooked immediately. I was like, this of course. Right. So Thing is, it's been said that baseball is a sport that's some somewhat on the decline. And when you look at the world of TV ratings, that's quite true. For example, last year, the 2020 World Series 
the game one of the World Series between the Los Angeles Dodgers and the Tampa Bay Rays opened with a historic drop in ratings. And then game two of the World Series drew only 8,950 viewers, according to Awful Announcing, which makes it the least watched World Series game of all time. That's mm. not something Major League Baseball wants. And No. You know, Tyson, it got me thinking. What can we do? What can be done to, to sort of reverse this trend a little bit? Because let, let's be real, right? Baseball is not, like I said, the fast hit thing that's going to draw in kids naturally. And well, I mean, if you play Little League, it might, but not everybody does. And I think, Tyson, that one of baseball's biggest problems is that it is a inherently conservative sport, incredibly historic, but very conservative sport. And for that reason, combined with its slower, more methodical nature, this does not sit well with younger viewers who are both more liberal in general and have shorter attention spans and way more things competing for said attention. Have you been on TikTok lately? Thank God I have not. But <laughs> I <that> have. Aside, <laughs> you know, I've always gotten, I, I, I've been thinking, Tyson, what can we do to actually try to mitigate this situation? And the first thing that I would say is that the rule that they introduced during the pandemic probably angers some baseball purists, but putting a runner on second base whenever the game goes to extra innings. Personally, I think that this is a really important idea because it just, it speeds the game up. Like baseball not only can take a long time, but it can feel like a long time, particularly to casual fans or younger would-be fans. And you know, when you go to overtime, for example, in hockey or in basketball, you don't want overtime to be met with, oh my goodness, we're not done yet. You want overtime to be an exciting thing, obviously. Overtime magic in the NHL, as we know, in the playoffs, like my goodness, that is edge of your seat stuff or should be. And yeah. And I really think, first of all, that by putting in that uh that second runner. Regardless of what the baseball purists might say, regardless of how much it might not be fully emblematic of what the game of baseball is, it is really important in the regular season because let's be let's be real, there are 162 of these games to get through. And when they're starting at 10 p.m. Eastern, you gotta find a way to speed it along. Yeah, I think so. And like the NHL, the NBA, they all or not maybe not the NBA, but uh, the NHL and the NFL both have different set of rules for overtime between playoffs and regular season. Like the NHL, they have a much shortened uh, playoff three on three, and then they go into a shootout. The NFL, they have one overtime period. And if it's, if it's still tied at the end, then it's just a tie. Um, so in the, in the playoffs, obviously in hockey, it's five on five continuous until someone scores. And, in football, uh, it just continues on and it never ends until someone wins. I think that baseball needs to kind of adapt something like where the regular season and the playoff uh, overtime rules are different because, it, like you said, there's 162 games. It's way too much to try and go, you know, have have full overtime innings without having a, a base runner on to try and get through as many games in a regular season as they need to for baseball. Well said, in my opinion. And the second thing is just like, I don't know what it's going to take, but 
games need to stop starting at 10 p.m. Eastern. <laughs> like, kids are going to bed, right, at, at, at 10 p.m. Eastern. And I, I'd wager that none but the most diehard fans of any given team or diehard fans of a sport are going to want to stay up until 1, 1.30, 2 p.m. or 2 a.m. to watch mm-hmm. baseball, especially not regular season baseball. And if this sport wants to revitalize itself, you obviously have to draw in the the youth because the the 60-year-old baseball Puritans are going to be 70 in 10 years and they're not going to be around forever. And you really need that influx of of young energy and starting games at 9 p.m. Eastern, 10 p.m. Eastern for a game that already can can clod along sometimes. That's just not going to get the job done from a marketing standpoint. No, it's not. And, like, you have some of your greatest baseball players out West. Like, you know, like Clayton Kershaw, Cody Bellinger, Shohei Otani, Mike Trout. Like, those guys are in Los Angeles. Like, those guys are the guys that, you know, are highly marketable. They're very skilled baseball players. And the reality is, is because the games start 10 p.m. Eastern, most of the East Coast probably doesn't watch nearly as much of those players as you you know you probably should like the Dodgers they won the World Series they have Mookie Betts they have a really really good team with a lot of marketable players but it seems like the East Coast teams in baseball get far more media attention and far more viewership and I think that has to do with the fact that you know games start much later in the West and especially because a baseball game can go for three three and a half hours if it goes into extra innings Nobody has the time to watch a three and a half hour baseball game that started at 1030 Eastern. Exactly. And even though more, more of the teams are out East and that's traditionally where baseball's at again, the West is a relatively kind of a, a newer frontier for them. And it's, it's something that they want to keep exploring from an expansion span point. If you want to grow the sport, particularly to newer viewers, you do want to pay attention to, the West Coast, because there are less overall, less teams, less viewers there, but there are these superstars that are very much worth watching. You, you can't just focus only on the Yankees and the Red Sox. Obviously you've got to, you've got to factor that in as well. And Mm -hmm. finally, Tyson, to end off this segment in my baseball viewing history, particularly on television, where there is a, there's a virtual square overlaid on top of the, the strike zone that exposes umpire mistakes very blatantly when they happen. I've yeah. always wondered, look, every other sport, every other major sport has a video replay system. Soccer has VAR, basketball, hockey, football, all have video review systems where you can challenge calls. And yeah, you can challenge calls in baseball as well, but the not to the extent that an umpire's strike calls can be routinely challenged but the problem with that is umpires are human what i'm going to say next is probably going to anger a lot of baseball traditionalists but i don't care because this is purportedly a free free country is it not so here we go Mm -hmm. um umpires they're an important part of the game they're a very traditional part of the game by no means get rid of umpires But what I really think baseball needs in the name of fairness and accuracy, which we should want that at all levels of the game, is to 
install a video official whose entire job is to stare at the virtual strike zone, which we presume is his app here. That's where else the TV networks wouldn't be using it to a video official to stare at the virtual strike zone. And whenever an umpire, for example, calls a ball a strike or vice versa in a way that is blatantly wrong, the other team should be able to appeal to that video official. And these reviews should take like 30 seconds because the guy is looking at the screen this entire time and can clearly say, oh, look, based on this, that ball was clearly in the strike zone or was clearly thrown out of the strike zone, overturn the umpire's call, update the, the pitch count, and go from there. And again, it's it's probably an idea that doesn't sit well with the conservative nature of baseball, but I really think that it would be important not only just to speed the game up, but also to make it more fair, which is what we want. Yeah, and I think that's something that younger viewers want more of than the older generation is getting things right. Um, from my experience, like the older generation, they're more okay with like human mistakes and human errors in sports. And people our age, we're like, we grew up with technology and we have the technology to get the call right. Why don't we get it right? Um, so that's kind of like something that I've noticed is that younger fans across all sports are more in favor of using technology to get things right rather than living with human error and living with human judgment. Uh, like you've mentioned, I think that this needs to be a fast process. Baseball is already as slow as, you know, really it, it can be. There's no, there's no timer on this thing. There's no, there's no pitch clock or anything like that. Uh, so with baseball, I think that speed is key and you want to try and keep the game moving. So as long as the video review can happen very quickly, very shortly, um, there's an ump there with an iPad or whatever, being able to see the strike zone and says, this is what it is. Um, then, yeah, I think it can help baseball and I think it can help speed it along. And just to conclude, I want to jump on something else you said, and I think we've already alluded to so far in this episode, is that it's about the youth, right? Mm -hmm. There are veteran baseball fans out there like and players and coaches and umps themselves who could probably write me entire dissertations about why everything I just said is garbage however like I said before I don't think their views with all due respect should be the be-all and end-all because we need to we need to grow the sport baseball wants to keep thriving baseball wants to appeal to a new generation so that it as a sport can continue to to grow and to keep up with football and basketball and hockey and the argument i'll leave off with is guess what guys all sports change there was a if you're old enough you can remember a time when the three-pointer was not a significant factor in basketball or even when the three-pointer didn't exist in the nba get over it long-range shooting and floor spacing is the way the game is played now or football, like there used to be a time when quarterbacks like poor Joe Teisman could get abused horribly by pass rushers and defensive players and the game was much more rough. But that changed because we as a society realized ultimately we want to protect our players and take care of their health better. Hockey, goalies used to not wear masks. We're really glad that that is no longer the case. And right. so I would say... From a baseball standpoint, 
you got to get over yourself a little bit. All sports evolve. All sports grow and change with the times as new technology and new ways of thinking and new needs become prevalent. And right now, I would say baseball's need to at least some extent is to appeal to a wider audience. And in order to do that, you've got to make the game at least a little bit more efficient. And you've also got to make it more accurate using the technology that's available as well as, of course, scheduling-wise to try to hit more of a diverse audience. And if you don't do these things, well, guess what? It's just it, like these, these low ratings that the 2020 World Series got, they're not going to get any better because less and less young people will decide that they either don't care about baseball at all or don't care about it to the extent that they could. And both are bad for the game and for Major League Baseball's long-term bottom line. No, and I agree. And, and like you mentioned, like in hockey, they had the two-line pass implemented, right? Because you know, the, the NHL didn't want players cherry picking, not playing the game. They didn't really want that. And then, you know, a couple of decades later, they realized that the two-line pass was just slowing down the game from offense. So they got rid of it. So I think that rule changes can be right for a time period and then wrong for a time period. So I think that, you know, when a rule has been implemented, it has a reason for being implemented. And then when we no longer need that rule, then we can get rid of it. And it'll change the game and affect the game differently because the game is different now. And I think that that can be the same for baseball where some of these rules that maybe were implemented early on can now be changed. And I, I don't have a problem with that. No, me neither. And I mean, time will tell if anything so dramatic actually happens, but for now, I think we can only hope because Hey, baseball, there, there's a lot of cool things about baseball. If you can get into it. And mm -hmm. I think that, this current generation of fans deserves a chance to get into it. Now, speaking of getting into things, I <laughs> have been getting into something that is a little bit more, shall we say, avant-garde than baseball it's, in a big it's, way. It's, it's niche. It's, it's quite niche. It, it's, it's not as mainstream as baseball <laughs> we're talking of course about swimming but not just olympic swimming like you guys if you guys heard our season one finale you know i love the olympics and you know that swimming is actually one of my favorite sports to watch in the olympics but what i want to talk about right now is something called the international swimming league something that is far far less famous than the olympics and far newer in fact it's only in its third season having started up in 2019 so the ISL, the International Swimming League, is, a, is an attempt to blend the sport of swimming with flashy graphics and entertaining things and franchising kind of like other sports teams in order to draw more notoriety to, to swimming itself. And so you've got a whole bunch of swimmers from all countries, including Caleb Dressel and, and Summer McIntosh and a lot of people that did compete at the Olympics but they've been split up into city-based teams. Like you got the Toronto Titans and the Cali Condors and the London Roar and the Tokyo Frog Kings, which in my opinion channels a bit of Orlando Solar Bears in its naming. That's amazing. That I love that. The Tokyo <laughs> Frog. That's amazing. Kings, right. And, but yeah, you just like any other major league sports team, you've got rosters full of people from everywhere and mm -hmm. they compete, you know, on a weekly basis in a, every single stroke and distances from the 50 meters to the 400 meters. Now, what makes the ISL actually special is the formatting that I mentioned before. 
For example, you're not going to find this anywhere else in swimming, but there's a jackpot rule for every race. And here's how it works is that for every stroke and distance, there is a set margin of error time-wise. It, it might be for a 50 meter, it might be 0.4 seconds. For a 400, it might be seven or eight seconds and everything in between. But, but the point is, if you finish more than that allowed gap of time behind the first place swimmer, you get jackpotted, which means that the first place swimmer gets nine points for winning the race, second place gets seven, third place gets six, and so on. However, let's say the jackpot time for 50-meter freestyle is 0.4 seconds, and you finish more than that time behind the winner, they take your points. So you get nothing for your team, and they get even more <laughs> than the nine they do for winning the race. Wow. Yeah, no, that's that's so cool and so interesting. Like, this whole, like, idea, like, if you do really, really well – you can steal people's points. Like that gives like that whole like new element of finishing first is great, but finishing first by a wider margin creates more points for you and your team. Not only that, but you get into these situations where let's say if there's two elite swimmers in a field that is overall weaker than they are. And let's say they both swim incredibly fast, but one guy out touches the other by one one hundredth of a second. You now get into a situation where the first place winner jackpots a whole bunch of other people and could win 12 points, 15, 25 points. And the second place swimmer only gets seven points because they lost out on the jackpot by one one hundredth of a second. Oh, man, like that would be heart wrenching for that one person who comes second by one one hundredth of a second. It definitely adds a whole bunch of more layers to competitive swimming. It certainly does. And. There are other cool formatting things that they do. Like, for example, they have the Mixed Medley Relay, which was an event introduced by FINA, the, the swimming body at the, World, uh, at the World Championships a few years ago, where each team is two men, two women, four different strokes, which is absolutely fascinating because coaching and strategy come into play in a big way. Like, for example, you might have a world champion or Olympic gold medalist female backstroker on your team but you have to decide do you want her to swim that stroke because she's going to be slower than any of the men that your opponents put on like that's for sure mm. but you can't just put blindly put two men at the start of the race because no matter how big of a lead they put up your women at the end will probably get caught by the other team's men if they're especially if they're swimming strokes that they're relatively weak or relatively average in so Man, I got to tell you, Tyson, it's such a wild race. Like, you right, you've got whenever men are in the pool, they're like erasing six second gaps or erecting <laughs> six second gaps. And you can't tell for sure who's winning until it gets to the final swimmer. And then you've got heart wrenching situations. Like, for example, I wonder, I, I watched in an ISL race a few, uh, actually, it was last week where one team had a six second lead and it was the mm -hmm. final leg, which was the freestyle. And they had, you know, very solid, like, internationally relevant female female uh, front crawler in to finish on the 100 meter freestyle and then the london roar sent in kyle chalmers who barely lost out to caleb dressel for a couple of gold medals at the olympics and for the first right. 50 meters you're like okay but the lead is so big and the women that this other team has in like they're not slow so surely they've won right 
And in the last 25 meters, as they made the turn, you realize that Kyle Chalmers had caught them both and he stormed home on the last 25 to win for the London Roar. And it was not apparent until the last 25 meters of the race. That's crazy. And that like creates interest for long, like the entire race, right? When you don't know who's going to win until like the last second, that makes it more compelling and makes me want to watch the entire race, you know, like, you know, with, with things like Usain Bolt, you kind of almost assume that he's going to win. Now he was so spectacular that you wanted to see how good he could be, but yeah, like when, when you kind of know what's happening halfway through the race, like if it's a blowout in a football game, Mm -hmm. like odds are the other team's not coming back. So a lot of people turn off the, turn off the TV with this, you can't do that because there's so many different layers, so many different strategies that if you have your best swimmer first, you could have a great lead. But if you have your best swimmer last, then you could be able to catch up and gain time and maybe sneak a win out from under everybody. That's, that's really interesting. Yeah. And finally, this, this is something that to my knowledge, the ISL did introduce and it's just as interesting as the, excuse me, as the medley relay, the 50-meter skit, which ends off every match. And so ISL matches are, are two days of competition, and the points at the end of the second day determine which team won that particular match. But at the end of the first day, the relays at the end of the first day, if you win that, you get to pick a stroke out of the four. But second and third place get to eliminate one. So if the second place knows your strong team in terms of butterfly, they'll eliminate that for you. And if the third team realizes, oh, you've got a few really good breaststrokers, they'll eliminate that. And you have to pick from the remaining two. What the 50-meter skins is actually about is a three-round elimination derby where everybody lines up, every team sends two swimmers because four teams competing every, every match. And it's a 50-meter sprint, but at the end of the first 50-meter sprint, only the first four get to move on to the second round. And everybody else's point-scoring potential is capped right there. Second round, they get a three-minute rest, another 50-meter sprint of whatever stroke it is. Second round, only the top two make it through. And those bottom two, their point-earning potential is capped. And then finally, it ends with the fastest two going for 50 meters once again, and the winner gets a bunch of extra points. And, you know, we were talking about baseball earlier and what it could do to improve itself. I love the International Swimming League because it's obvious that they have gone, they have gone into the playbook and they have come up with so many new creative ideas that the world of swimming has never seen before, let alone the general public. And it's going to be stuff like this that raises the relevance of swimming, especially on the heels of the Olympics, to something where people are like, hey, I might actually watch this because it's so cool. I've never seen it before. And it, like you said, it generates interest. Yeah, totally. And, you know, I think that it's super cool that they're trying all these new things like, you know, swimming. Let's be honest, not not really many people are super interested in watching swimming on TV. So, you know, they kind of had nothing to lose in terms of trying to recreate this. And I think that they've done an excellent job. They've come up with something that's creative, that's interesting, that's compelling. And my favorite part about this is the fact that the athletes are on board with this. You know, like a lot of the athletes, like you mentioned, like they like this style of format, especially because it's, it's interesting and it adds new layers to it. 
I think that if you just kind of did the way that the Olympics, uh, you know, scored where you just had one race, 100 meter breaststroke, see who's the fastest, like that would get some viewership. But I think that overall it would lose its specialness, you know, like you, you see the same thing repetitive over and over and over again. You want to see something different. And this is different. And I think that different is great, especially for this kind of stuff. Yeah, I couldn't have, couldn't have said it better myself. And the next thing on my wish list, Tyson, is I really hope someday track and field picks up on this. Because can you imagine oh. if, if this had been around and Usain Bolt was still racing and you've got world-class sprinters running 9.85 seconds, but the jackpot time was like point like 0.14 seconds and Usain Bolt runs a 9.7 like he was capable of and he jackpots mm-hmm. people off it. How crazy would that have made track and field? That would have been so cool. And even in like a point scoring system, like the septathlon or the decathlon, where based off of how you do, you get points. Uh, I think it would be super cool to introduce this into the decathlon, where if you beat certain people by certain times or certain distances or what have you, you get to steal their points. I think that that would add like six new levels to the decathlon. Oh my goodness that would be absolutely interesting and super, super dynamic. So oh, that I think there's cool. a lot of potential with this type of stuff. Yeah. It would be, you're, you're totally right. Like imagine, imagine Damian Warner winning, like fi- becoming the first man to break like the 15,000 point barrier in the decathlon because he jackpotted the bottom half in a lot of his events. That just, you're right. That's already an, a grueling and difficult event. Add six more layers on top. Like, man, like that's not right. the tournament plaza right there. And, and now kind of like almost like the decathlon athletes, they've been training for their lives to be like as well-rounded and everything. Meanwhile, now maybe the people that are more specialized in certain areas, they'll be able to get first in a couple of events, jackpot the rest, and then be able to stockpile a whole bunch of points for their, their so that way they don't have to perform as well in weaker, weaker uh, sections of, of the decathlon or septathlon. I think it would be fascinating and I really hope that one day some track and field organization jumps on this and just, just gives it a try, right? You never know how it's, how it might change the sport until you actually try it. And as for the ISL, you know what I paid for the, for the full season was only $36. I paid for the full season on the, uh, on their website, even though you can watch some of the matches on CBS, but I was like, man, this -hmm. is something I want to support. And hopefully yeah track and field does the same and yeah hopefully baseball is able to you know maybe not end every game with a home run derby right but but maybe baseball can mm-hmm. can find it within itself to get creative and, and and just experiment with a few things that might appeal to newer audiences because ultimately that is what they're going to need to grow mm-hmm. i completely agree now with that being said tyson you've got a feel-good story for us like we normally do so why don't you take it away yeah. So, uh, you know, for me, college for- football, college sports is something that, you know, I'm interested in. Uh, I like a lot of the college football storylines. It's very interesting and it's very, you know, very new. And it, a lot of like crazy stuff happens in college football, college basketball, just because you have these young, highly emotional human beings playing, you know, for their school. And, it, and it's something that's so interesting and dynamic about it that, it kind of, you know, breeds this chaotic atmosphere. And that's why you see, you know, huge upsets in college football 
and like highly emotional events that happen. So uh, that's why I really like the sport. And if you follow college sports kind of like I do, you'll know that uh, the NCAA uh, in the United States, the kind of the organization that runs college sports is now allowing athletes to make money off of their name, image, and likeness. And this is the first time ever that a college athlete will be able to profit from their own name, image, and kind of because of their popularity of the sport. So now this kind of creates an interesting and new dynamic where uh, college athletes who are technically considered to be amateurs are now uh, have the opportunity to get paid for being popular and being a college quarterback or a college basketball player or a pitcher in college. And I think that that's super cool. And it allows these younger athletes to be able to have the opportunity to, you know, have money, deal with money, manage money at a younger age before they hit the pros and they make millions. And I think it's awesome that uh, this happens, but also I want to share a particular story about this uh, college quarterback. His name is Derek King. He's the college quarterback for the Miami Hurricanes. He is very famous and very popular down there. Miami is, you know, very famous for football, their program. They've won national championships. They had a dynasty in the 80s. So they're very prominent in, you know, kind of the the college football sort of realm. And, you know, unfortunately, they haven't had a great season so far this year. But De'Eric King was one of the first uh, athletes to sign a name, image, and likeness deal where he can profit off of his own image, his own name, and make money because he's the Miami quarterback. And what I think is really special is that De'Eric King and all of the other athletes from the University of of Miami have decided that we're going to take every single dollar, every single dime, that is being made from this name, image, and likeness stuff. And we're going to share it equally between all of the athletes in the locker room. And I think that that's so cool and so unique. And like the University of Miami, they've been known to recruit players in Florida that are, you know, kind of from the rougher neighborhoods that don't have a lot of money, don't have a lot of stuff. If you ever want to look at kind of the Ray Lewis story, I encourage you to do so. For example, like Ray Lewis, he went to the University of Miami and he got to college with two T-shirts, a pair of jeans, a duotang and three pencils. And that was it. You know, he had to borrow clothes from his from his teammates. And, you know, he had a couple of food stamps that way he could be able to get meals that, you know, during the weekends and stuff like that. But really, that's that's what Ray Lewis had. And a lot of these young kids they're freshmen they're sophomores they haven't had a chance to earn their their stripes on the field so they haven't gotten these name image and likeness deals and now Dierra king and the rest of the miami hurricanes that have gotten these deals and gotten these the the money they're being able to share it within the team so that way you don't have these guys that are 18 that are struggling to have food for the weekend because, you know, their scholarship doesn't pay for food on weekends. And that's really great. And I think that it's super awesome to see De'Ara King bring that forward, have the leadership in that locker room to share the finances and this new wealth that is being influxed into the college realm of sports with the entire team. So that way, it's not just 
the elite few players in college football that are getting this money. It's everybody. And I think that's so great. Not only that, Tyson, but many people over the years have realized the hypocrisy of demanding that college athletes, even the most high profile ones, play for free while schools and athletic departments and entire conferences make billions of dollars off of their hard work and their athletic performance. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad, first of all, that this victory has been won for college athletes so that they can really do the things that other American citizens are able to do, which is to market themselves or to go into business in some way, if they so desire. And again, like in, in, in all the pro sports, like, like in every job, like sure, Google and Amazon might be huge companies, but they still got to pay their employees, right? And mm -hmm. much in the same way, you know, pro sports, obviously, the more of a superstar you are, the more money you get, because that's how much you mean to your team. And that's how many jerseys you sell. And they realize, wow, Kansas City realizes Patrick Mahomes makes us a different team, not only on the football field, but off because of Patrick Mahomes' reputation as an elite quarterback who makes exciting plays every single week. There's, there was never any reason why this shouldn't be extended to college athletes. I mean, okay, maybe if college athletics was not such a cash cow in the United States, I think there, some, there was something noble in theory about the student athlete, you know, these kids who are here mainly for school and they play sports because they love it. However, obviously that's just not how the United States turned out as a society and college athletics is in many ways, a, a bigger cash cow than pro sports because up until recently, they didn't have to pay anybody anything and they didn't have to let anybody make any money off their own hard work. And I'm so glad that's changed. And for a young man like Garrett King to have the maturity and the compassion to organize something like that for his team, to look out for his teammates, first of all, I think his offensive linemen are going to block that much harder for him in every game because mm -hmm. that's if, if, you know, I'm sure there were other reasons they appreciated him. This one puts him over the top. And it really is, is an act of, of leadership that I would say, like, if Derek King keeps this up, he and makes him the NFL, that's a Walter Payton man of the year nominee right there. And I really hope we get to see more from him and more from other young men and women in the NCAA world who are taking advantage of this opportunity to help not only themselves, but others. Yeah. And I think that, the only thing that it's going to be able to do is, is grow the game and really help out these young athletes perform at their best, you know? And, and I agree with you, like the hypocrisy within NCAA sports, like most college football coaches are paid more than the NFL coaches because the schools have the money to do so. Like Dabo Sweeney is getting paid more than well over 70% of the coaches in the NFL like, I, I think he gets paid. We, we don't know what Bill Belichick gets paid because the Patriots are extremely coy and never relieving any of that information. But, um, yeah, like, Dabble Swooney makes more than most head coaches in the NFL. And he's a college coach. Same with Nick Saban. Same with Lincoln Riley. Probably Matt Day in Ohio State as well. So, you know, like, these big schools are making big dollars and they have to funnel it somewhere, so they go to the coaches. Why can't it go to the players, at least a little bit of it, and allow these players to have the opportunity to make some money off of their own name? So I just thought that was a really great story that I wanted to share, and, and yeah, I think it's super awesome.
Yeah, and like you said, after all, we're not asking that university athletic departments start paying college football players salaries. We're simply asking that they allow these players to do something to benefit from the work and the time that they are putting in to help the school and to help the conference. And that's happening, and, mm -hmm. and we look forward to seeing a lot more of that. Speaking of seeing things for the first time, uh, if you guys, if any of you guys follow me on social media, you know that I went to my first ever NFL game a couple of weeks ago. That was the Indianapolis Colts home opener, Lucas Oil Stadium against the visiting Seattle Seahawks. And I was excited for a few reasons. One, obviously, first NFL game speaks for itself yep. live. Second <laughs> is that I got to watch the real life super soldier DK Metcalf break tackles all day long. 1% body fat, DK Metcalf. Yeah, 1% <laughs> body fat, DK Metcalf. Yeah, that, that's right. <laughs> Megatron 2.0, or at least we hope. But <laughs> that aside, you know, obviously, because there's no built-in rivalry with the Packers and because the Colts are a storied franchise with guys like Peyton Manning in their rearview mirror, I have no problem cheering for the Colts. I have no problem uh, watching them and but I'll tell you what, Tyson, first of all, the tailgating experience, like you've experienced it in Buffalo, the tailgating is, is a whole other level from anything you can get in the CFL. There's just way more people. The atmosphere is electric. Yeah. Everybody's there bringing the energy. I even got to run a 40-yard dash, electronically timed 40-yard dash for the first time in my life. And, you know, that's something that I've always been a little bit curious about because, it's all over the NFL. And I'm like, well, you know, like these, these great athletes are, are running around, you know, four, three, four point four seconds or, or, or whatever. But, but man, I, I got, I got to say the, the first time that the first time that I ran it, I, I ran a 5.77 second 40 yard dash in my large cargo shorts and my Jimmy Graham jersey. And the second time I tried it, I got even better, and I got 5.46, and no proper warm-up and nothing like that. And I'm just – you guys out there on the Internet will allow me this, this moment of, uh, of self-promotion. Self Honestly, man, just <laughs> – I'm a 5'3 non-athlete. I was pretty happy about that. It was a little <laughs> cake. Hey, man. Isaiah Thompson at the NFL Combine ran 606. So uh hey, you're you're doing better than some some college athletes, some NFL athletes that are currently there. Granted, those are probably all offensive linemen. But anyways, at least you can say that you ran a, a good number. Exactly. <laughs> you know what? We're just gonna ignore all the context of them being like 300, probably 30 pounds and can bench press <laughs> like you know 500 pounds and then no, 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 whatever. We're not going to, we're not going to talk about that. What we are going to talk about is the fact that to me, at least when I stepped into Lucas Oil Stadium for the first time, it was like freaking Disneyland. I said those rooms out loud. I was like, wow, this is like Disneyland. Just the architecture of the place being an indoor stadium. I really, really liked, I mean, there were lights, there were cool designs and signs and it was, man, there was just so much energy, this fishbowl. And I, I think what COVID-19 did really, made the energy seem that much more authentic and valuable to so many people. 63,000 to be exact. It was a sold out game and it was cool because I mean, okay, sure. The Colts lost the Seahawks because their, their run defense really just underperformed. And I think Chris Carson was averaging like seven and a half yards per carry in the first half. And that's 
that's unacceptable when you have Darius Leonard and DeForest Buckner and Grover Stewart and man, a defense that was coming off a good year. But what I really want to talk about is just the energy that live sports brings. And, you know, this, this will maybe be another feel good story, but, you know, I sat next to this guy named Sean, a long haired guy, you know, probably five foot eight tattoos. And since I was proudly wearing my Jimmy Graham jersey of the Green Bay Packers, because I'd like to be fun and a little different, he was like, hey, man, you're at the wrong game. But from that point on, we started <laughs> carrying on a conversation, and I learned that he was born and raised in Indiana. He loved the Colts since before Peyton Manning, and, you know, and he was a construction worker. And I got to tell him that, like, hey, I'm not actually from Wisconsin. I'm from Calgary, and I'm here for sports journalism. And, you know, he was really, he was really into that, and then – there was these couple of Seattle Seahawks fans behind me as well that I thought were kind of hooligans and might've been drunk because they were like yelling and whooping <laughs> and being like, Bobby Wagner, I love you. And yet <laughs> and they also started talking to me because of my jersey. Like, hey, so like, are you a Seahawks fan? Because you know, you're wearing Jimmy I got to talk to them and it turns out these were just guys that flew out to, see, to, to Indianapolis rather with their families, like their wives or girlfriends and, and a few friends to, to take in the game and it turned out that they weren't there to hate on anybody or to, to cause trouble. They were just there to cheer for their team passionately. And after I talked to them, I knew that they had, that they knew about the Seahawks. They were educated football fans, but not afraid to let their hair down. So really, I think it was, it was that part and just the atmosphere of, of a fishbowl that size, 63,000 people. It's like, it's at least double the size of any other stadium I've ever been in my life. And Tyson, man, it was. Um... Yeah, that's super awesome. I, I'm super glad that you got to be able to experience that and to be able to go to a live sports entertainment game, you know, COVID, COVID really. And, you know, COVID really ended a lot of things for us, you know, being able to force us inside and that kind of stuff. And it really, you know, took away our enjoyment of sports for a little bit and the ability to not go in and see games, not see live sports. And I think that's something that I've really appreciated now in a post COVID kind of world is, the amount that I really enjoy live sports, Uh, you know, just recently the CFL just got going again and I was able to go to the Labor Day classic game between Calgary and Edmonton, big rivalry, you know, just down the road. And I had a great time. And, you know, we were, (laughs) me and my girlfriend, we were in the back, you know, nosebleed kind of seats, but you know, we were, again, we, we were sitting by a bunch of Calgary fans and, and yeah, we just cheered along with them. We talked with them. We got to know them. We got to know, you know, their names and, and yeah, like why they were passionate about the Stampeders and everything like that. And, you know, obviously I'm super happy about, you know, the CFL starting and everything like that, and that league getting going again after COVID and everything. So I totally now have a new appreciation for live sports and being able to go and see games. And I think that that's something that I want to be able to do more of is to see more live sports because that was something that I always kind of took for granted for a long time of like, ah, I don't really need to go to see the Stampeders play. They have tons of games, you know, not super expensive tickets, the game on TV, but not having that opportunity for a year and seeing that, you know, live sports can be taken away kind of almost at an instant. It made me appreciate it a lot more. And uh, yeah, that's something that I, I'm really happy that you got to experience, you know, in the States with football, it's a whole different set of world. And 
yeah, I, I'm super thrilled about it. Certainly. And as far as appreciating something in a new light, I got to say, Tyson, I never liked Tom Brady. And I think the <laughs> fact that he was winning all those championships with one team, the New England Patriots, made it that much worse. I'm sure you would agree. But yeah. now that he's in Tampa Bay, like, you know, I was talking to a mutual friend of ours, uh, Pastor Brennan Dick, and uh, a few months ago, he said that, you know what, man, like Brady's so fun in Tampa Bay. You get to see his personality now. And I think that's true mm-hmm. to a lot of to an extent. You know, like he he posted something on Instagram during the Tampa Bay Lightning Stanley Cup playoff run. And he was like, come on, guys, let's go. Let's bring let's keep Lord Stanley in the Bay where he belongs. And it was just it was great to see a, an NFL superstar support a sport that's near and dear to us Canadians like that. And, and seeming like he genuinely is excited that another Tampa team is doing really well. And and honestly, as far as as far as his achievements, well, here's a stat for you, Tyson. Joe Montana threw 273 TD passes for his career. Tom yeah. Brady threw 290 TD passes since his 35th birthday. Oh, man. Since his 35th birthday? That's wild. Oh. I mean, okay, granted, different era. It's different much more pass-heavy. I, I was going to say it if, if you didn't, like – Back in Joe Montana's time, running back scored a lot more touchdowns, and that was the case for his 49ers. Joe Montana, like we also alluded to before, got beat up a lot more than Tom Brady because defenders were allowed to tee off on him. So it's it's I don't but you right like I think you realize it's not a Brady Montana apples to apples comparison, but it is like right. this sort of thing. It just like just the longevity that Brady has had is something else. Yeah, no, I I totally agree, and I think like when you uh, break down Brady's career I think like there was I, I saw uh, an Instagram post where it was like you know Brady in his first seven years in the league is like in itself a hall of fame career mm. then his next seven years is also a hall of fame career and then now his last seven years because he's in his 21st 22nd season in the NFL now like it's also a Hall of Fame. Like, he's essentially had three separate Hall of Fame careers over the past, you know, two decades, which is absolutely incredible. And also, like, he's on pace to have more touchdowns in his 40s than he did in his 20s. And, you that's know, a, it seems like Tom Brady. That's an equally ridiculous stat. Now, granted, Tom Brady, he didn't play much in his early 20s. You know, he was drafted six-round pick, was sitting behind – um Oh shoot! Who drew both? So and and um, you know first overall pick. So he didn't start right away. And you know kind of that sixth round pick. You know relied on the Bill Belichick defense. They had a lot of great players on that defense, and they didn't need to score a whole bunch of points to win games. But even still, like Tom Brady, his ability to throw the ball at age forty four is still very good. And you know I thought kind of like this was going to be Brady's really good year. I thought that the Bucs would not win the Super Bowl last year, but they would be in contention this year because you're two in an offense. You understand more. You you know the schemes more. You have more chemistry with the players. You kind of just have a more overall general, better understanding of the team and the fit. I thought that this year would be really good for Brady, and I didn't think last year would be good for Brady. Well, last year was good for Brady, and this one's even better. Oh. And, you know, nine touchdowns, first two games, like, He's been wow. he's been excellent and I just can't I just can't ignore his greatness anymore even though I don't I don't want to. 
<laughs> well, well, and that's and, and that's the thing when it comes down to it. Yeah, sure, Deflategate wasn't great, and and but but I also think that in some ways you have to give Brady credit because in, he has earned the success and longevity. Right, he he follows an incredibly strict training and diet regimen above and beyond what most other professional yeah. athletes do. Right, he doesn't drink during the season. He goes to bed at like eight. And he gets up super early and he's got this custom made meticulous nutrition plan. But what I respect even more than that is the fact that Brady, right, in an in a society rather where star athletes hunt the money, right? Like mm-hmm. mercenaries. You've got Kevin Durant, you know, signing supermax contracts with the Golden State Warriors, the team that knocked his formerly his thunder out of the playoffs the year prior. You've got Patrick Mahomes at a total of $503 million over the next 10, 12 12 years, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And Tom Brady continues to be, by NFL quarterback standards, criminally underpaid. And part of the reason is he understands that championships and success mean more to him than money. And by being so relatively affordable, he allowed his New England Patriots to to sign incredible, well-rounded teams because they had the cap space. And because he restructured his contract, Tampa Bay brought back, I think, all of their starters from the Super Bowl winning team. That's absolutely ridiculous. And, you know... Yeah, first time since the 70s Steelers that that happened. And that's... And and, and let's be real, right? Brady's a great quarterback and, and, and and a generational quarterback, but... Without that, that defense, Vita Vea, Shaq Barrett, JPP, Devin White, Levante David, they don't smother the Kansas City Chiefs like that. They don't hold off Rodgers and the Packers like that. They, they you know, and the, that defense deserves so much credit for that, that victory. They're a terrifying, athletic, fast defense. I'd never want to play them again um, <laughs> for the sake of Aaron Rodgers' health. And, right. and I just think that a lot of Brady haters, they, they miss the point. They're like, oh, like, I want my guy to, 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 to win more Super Bowls, and I hate Brady, and I want him to lose more. And it's like, yeah, but, but your guy just went to another team or, or salary capped your team by signing a Supermax contract, and so now you don't have any depth on defense. Meanwhile, Brady has this insane defense behind him because he's not demanding that much money because he understands that, yeah, not okay. Not only is he married to a supermodel who's richer than he is, but at the end of the day, he wants success and championships more than he wants money. Whereas a lot of guys, you know, like including Aaron Rodgers, if you chase the money, if you want the money, that's great. You've received your reward in full, but it makes it harder for your GM to give you a better team. Yeah. And, you know, like you mentioned, like, he is willing to sacrifice for good teams and good players. And like, that's why the Bucs were able to keep all those players back. And that's why they had year after year after year of being competitive in new England. And, you know, there are some quarterbacks that are frankly not nearly as good as Tom Brady that are, you know, making more money. I think Carson Wentz is making more money in Indianapolis this year than Tom Brady is. in Tampa Bay. And like, like that just shows you like, he's willing to take less in order to win games. And, and yeah, Hey, listen, I'm mad because it didn't happen to my team. That's, that's ultimately what I'm, what I'm salty about is that I'm sad that Tom Brady 
did this with the Patriots and that it didn't happen with my Packers. Yeah, you know what, man? Me too. And you know what? The Aaron Rodgers thing, we, we've talked about that a lot, a lot in a, in a previous episode a few months ago. So I don't want to rehash that mm-hmm. right now, but, but you're right. Like they, y- you get what you deserve, I think, sometimes. You don't always get what you deserve in this world. But I think in this context, you do. And when, and when a guy like Aaron Rodgers is demanding to be paid like a top-flight quarterback, while a guy like Tom Brady consistently takes pay cuts so he can have a better team, there's a difference there. And that's why, you know what? Rodgers has incredible career numbers, but Brady has more rings. And, and that's, you know, and the, yes, there's an element of luck there, right? There's an element of, of freak 28 to three. That's like more than luck. That was like divine intervention kind of a thing <laughs> happening. But, but right, granted, right, you take two or three of Brady's rings away and he's still the winningest. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. quarterback in the, or athlete in the, the Super Bowl era, and at this point, you know, once I, w- w- once I, uh, once I can find more time in my school schedule, I will actually want to watch some more Buccaneers games because I want I want to appreciate this guy while he's still around. Yeah, yeah, he he looks really good. He looks like he, you know, can go a long ways this season. And you know, the Bucks are a contender as long as Brady can keep this up. Who yeah. you know at this point. Could be another five years. Who knows? <laughs> Man, like he's he's like Yarmir Yager, but doesn't have to be quite as 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 athletic as Yager is in the game of hockey, and that just yeah, all the more credit to him. All right, folks, yeah. that that's all we have for you tonight. But before uh, before we wrap things up, I just wanted to give out a, a quick little disclaimer because, in all likelihood, we will not be able to churn out episodes at nearly the clip that we were uh, earlier this year. If you guys don't know him. I, I referenced this, but I'm back in Indianapolis now. I've got one more full semester of my master's program in sports journalism. And frankly, I've got a heavy workload ahead of me that will, it's, it's fine now, but it's definitely going to ramp up in the weeks to come. And Tyson, you've got stuff going on as well. And so unfortunately, you know, life is going to get in the way a little bit, but at the same time, we're really grateful for anyone out there that does listen to us and, we hope that when we can, every once in a while, we can put out an episode and, and talk sports with you guys. But thank you so mm-hmm. much. Yeah, thanks for listening. Hey, we really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll look forward to putting out the next episode whenever that happens to be. Well, and that being said, I got to channel my inner sports broadcaster here and say for Tyson Workington and our entire studio of just us, my name's David Song, saying so long from the draft board. <laughs> Sports Center is next. Nice. Not really. It's not. Thank you for listening to the draft board. Podcast music, intro, and outro is produced by Graham Bass. Your hosts, again, are David Song and Tyson Workington. Come back next week for more insight from the rink, the turf, and the court. See you soon.